So let's pray together. So God, we have your book before us and we're going to open and read and we acknowledge that anyone can do that. Uh, however, the words on the page are your words we believe and they speak to our heart only if we're willing to allow your spirit to enter in and um, cause these words to take root. So we're not here this morning necessarily to gain more information, although that's good. We're here to hear from the God of all creation. We are here to have our hearts and lives change. We are here to be moved by you. And so we acknowledge all this and so much more. You desire to speak to us now. So help us, God, to listen, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we turn to Scripture this morning, I have two little stories to try to ease our thoughts into what this passage says. In fact, they hardly count as stories, anecdotes, I don't know. Whatever they are, two things I'm going to start with. Number one, uh, there's a book written in or published in 1988, excuse me, by a gentleman named Richard Fulgham called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. You may have heard of the book. I don't know if you've read it or not. I've not read it. Probably should, but uh, this book um, has become kind of a modern classic, and uh, the title says it all. All I really need to know, I learned in kindergarten as part of us, I think that that speaks to uh, this understanding that things like sharing our toys and cleaning up our mess and uh, taking a nap, these things are valuable life lessons. We acknowledge that there is profound wisdom in the virtue that we desire of children. So that's anecdote one. Anecdote two. It's related, I swear. Uh, a few years ago, some of you uh, remember, uh, uh, were here when a few of us from the church went down to Guatemala on a mission trip, visit an orphanage down there. And while we were down there, Leanne was there, um, there, there was one missionary who, who was down there and she was uh, um, learning Spanish. I mean, she'd learned it well enough to be able to go. She had to know it before she went down there. But I remember her talking about how she was uncomfortable speaking to any group of locals because she said she was very embarrassed to sound like a five-year-old. We can understand that, right? You're just learning something new and it almost comes across as baby talk and that can be embarrassing for us adults to not appear comp uh, competent in a certain task. And so combine those two stories, we believe that there's profound wisdom that we desire of children, but then none of us want to be seen as being little kids. We want to be more sophisticated adults than that. And so those two things 
uh, are what I want us to think about as we enter into this passage of scripture we're looking at today, that we not be too prideful in our thinking to think that uh, this is too simple for us. We've moved beyond that because in fact, the simple truths that we have is profound wisdom in its simplicity. I want us to look at 1 John chapter 3 this morning. And as I set up this passage before we read, and we're just going to look at a few verses, uh, I want to say this about the epistle we call uh, 1 John. So the, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the Bible, uh, they're attributed to the Apostle John, guy that hung out with Jesus, uh, the guy that we also attribute the Gospel of John uh, to, as well as the book of Revelation. Now, we have to be clear, the, John doesn't announce himself in any of these books explicitly as being the, the author of, uh, of these books, doesn't uh, address himself as being the um, apostle of Jesus named John. So we don't want to say more about scripture than scripture says about itself. But it, from the very early uh, uh, years of the church's history, these have been attributed to John. And, and, and certainly uh, John's gospel in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, they certainly read a lot alike and as we'll see revelation that's a different story however uh we're gonna move on the assumption here that john wrote these uh uh certainly the same person wrote the gospel of john and first john but all that to say whoever wrote this wrote in very simple language and there's probably a very good reason for that aside from the fact that the Holy Spirit was working through the author, which we believe of all of Scripture. However, uh, because the different Bible books do read very differently, you can see a different tone in Paul than you do in First and Second Peter, than you do in First, Second, Third John, and that's because the authors, for that matter, Acts and Luke, the Gospels. You get the point. God used the personalities of the authors uh, and saw fit through the Holy Spirit to convey his word through their words and personalities. But what is significant about John, I think, one of the many things, is that John, like some of the other um, New Testament writers, was not a Greek speaker originally. He didn't grow up in a home where they spoke Greek. They spoke Aramaic where, where he uh, lived in Galilee. And so Greek was a second language and unlike the missionary I mentioned earlier, he wasn't afraid to sound like a five-year-old with his Greek. All that to say, his writing is so simple. Seminary students taking Greek love the epistles of John because it's, it's way easier than reading uh, the book of Acts, for instance. In the simplicity of this message that we're about to hear today, let us ask God to show us the profound wisdom that is, is far beyond what we might possibly gloss over as something that 
oh, I've already handled that. All right, it's about to, talked enough. Let's, let's read. This is the Bible right here, God's Word. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So let's break this down here before we move on. So what, what's being said right here? Love one another. Duh, right? That's something that is a message we probably should be hearing in church. So, all right, pretty basic stuff. Um, don't kill each other. Okay, duh, right? Don't be like Cain who killed his brother, all right? Uh, and, and why did he murder him? Well, because he was bad. He was evil. Don't be bad. Okay, so love one another. Don't kill each other. Don't be bad. That's, that's, some, that's some basic stuff. In fact, uh, aside from the killing each other, although it depends what kindergarten you go to, that might, some of these things might be stuff you'd hear in, in kindergarten. Now, now get along, kids. And uh, hey, uh, put down that sharp stick before you put an eye out. And, and uh, uh, don't be bad, boys and girls. Be good, boys and girls. Right? This is basic. Stuff. And in fact, we read through all of 1 John. That's a good exercise to do. It, it all kind of reads like this. So simple, so basic. However, there is some profound connections that are happening here from the writer, we believe, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is tying together the, the mystery of God's work in the world from creation through new creation to consummation, that book of Revelation stuff, the, the, uh, the connections here are profound. And I, I'd like to draw our attention to, to some of them by focusing on that word in verse 11, beginning. Message you've heard from the beginning is we should love one another. Well, this word shows up quite a few times in um, in first John it also shows up in the gospel of John and I believe it John is using this in what sounds like maybe simple kindergarten language he's using it to connect all of scripture together so when we hear the word beginning as we think of it biblically it takes us back to that very first sentence in Scripture in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so the gospel of John takes that word and, and uses it in the very beginning of the gospel of John, which we believe sure makes sense that it's the same author who wrote the gospel of John as 1 John. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And so the gospel writer is connecting Jesus with God the Creator being with God the Father and the Spirit in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And he's tying them together and saying, the Creator who made the world is remaking the world. Jesus himself, when he came 
and he lived and breathed, died and rose again in the first century Palestine. And why did the world need to be remade? Well, because in those opening chapters of Genesis, we have a story of why the world is the way it is. And so when John uses the word beginning, he's hearkening back to the creation story itself and saying there's a new beginning now in Jesus. And, and uh, when John's uh, epistle, 1 John, starts, that word beginning shows up again. In 1 John 1, 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and, at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So when he says that which was from beginning, what's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, right? He's talking about the same one they talked about in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, which is the same one that's talked about in the very beginning of the whole story, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He's tying Jesus to creation and saying he's coming here to fix what went wrong way back in the beginning. Because you see, when John uses the word beginning, he's hearkening back to not just Genesis 1-1, but I believe to the first four chapters of Genesis, the, 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 the story of creation and fall. So if we think of Genesis, first a few chapters typically very often uh, when we when we cover it and I don't remember what we did uh, a year ago when we were going through Genesis how much we we covered but typically we think of Genesis 1 creation Genesis 2 the special events around creation Adam and Eve in the garden naming of the animals okay and then Genesis 3 the fall with a snake makes his way in there tempts Adam and Eve, they fall, and then they're kicked out of the garden. But John includes chapter 4 because Genesis chapter 4 tells a story of Cain and Abel. What happens with Cain and Abel? Cain kills his brother, right? And then chapter 4 goes on and talks about the descendants of Cain and how they end up in being a murderous uh, bunch and... and uh, and, and then the story goes on from there. So as John thought about the early chapters of Genesis, the beginning, and when he comments on Jesus being the new beginning, he was there in the beginning and he's here now, what he's talking about is undoing what Satan did by causing people to be at enmity with one another such that they even killed each other. He talks about that hate being overcome by love so that they love the, the uh, creation that Jesus makes loves one another. And then he uses the word in a different way, the word beginning, to bring it all into 
personal application to his hearers in 1 John 2, verses 6 and 7. John says this, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've heard since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. So he's using the word beginning here to be the, the first time that message grabbed hold of his hearers and changed their lives so that they decided to follow Jesus. When John uses the word beginning in his writings, he's talking about the opening chapters of Genesis and, 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 and the creation and fall story. He's also talking about the create, new creation story of when that gospel began its work in his hearers. So this isn't just kindergarten we're in anymore. There's profound truth in these simple words. Love one another. Don't be like Cain. Don't allow the, the tempter to take us down the path that destroyed God's good creation. No, be, be good. Follow Jesus is John's message. Let's continue back in 1 John 3 and reading uh, where we left off, verse 13. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters. The world hates you. We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. We know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So it can be surprising. Why is John all hung up on murder here? Cain and murder, and uh, if we hate our brother, we're murderers. He's going back to the story. The first four chapters there he's of Genesis, he's talking about what happens when we believe the lie of the enemy that God is not as good as he says he is. He's withholding stuff from us. Whatever it is, when we believe the lie, it goes down a path that leads to chaos and ultimately uh, it, it leads to all the evils in society that, that we see with people at each other's throats. He's saying that we have passed from death to life when we love each other. We don't do that. We're headed down the path of the enemy and our lives and our, uh, our world devolves into chaos. It says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. So he's talking to the church here, right? The church in contrast to the world, those outside the church, right? So he's saying, how, how does the world, those outside the church, view the church? Why does it hate you? That's a good question to ask, right? So it's a good question to ask, how does the world see the church? How do those outside the church see those inside the church? And to bring it 
uh, down to our level to bring it home. How, how do people outside of this gathering here view us inside here? That's a good question to ask because John is saying here it's possible that if we're doing the right thing, loving one another, being like Jesus, it's possible that people outside this fellowship are going to feel a certain kind of way about that and that certain kind of way is not good. So how do people outside the church look at people inside the church? Well, that's a complicated question, right? And especially if we start to, to, to blow it up to any kind of big uh, uh, generalities, if we look at the church in America, what, what does that even mean? There's so many different kinds of churches. Our little gathering here, uh, in comparison to to. Uh, some kind of mega church in comparison to a Catholic church or an Orthodox church or a Pentecostal church. There's just all kinds of churches. We know that. There's all kinds of different ex expressions. And so it's hard to talk in generalities. But uh, when we talk about the church in America today, how is the church seen by those outside the church? Well, it's probably not controversial at all to say that there's, there's all kinds of uh, weird ideas uh, out there about what the church stands for. If you're to ask somebody, what what does the church stand for? What is the church about? There's all kinds of scandals that might come up uh, um, that uh, are fairly uh, fair, fairly um, widespread in news reports. There's, there's, we could talk about statistics, how many people claim to be Christians in, in America, I'm speaking about now, uh, which is a pretty big and broad topic. I saw, try to look at some statistics, and statistics uh, confused me pretty easily, but some 70% of uh, uh, Americans claim they're Christians. Uh, there's about 25% that claim they're evangelicals, but uh, the, the number of people that admit um, claim to, to go to church regularly is is less than that. So, I mean, if we were to talk to a kindergartner who said, I'm a kindergartner, but I don't go to kindergarten. How does that work? I don't know, right? But uh, so there's all kinds of confusion out there. But I would say that a lot of people think of Christians as uh, revolving around what what, what are being called uh, and has been for some time now culture wars, uh, all the stuff that they're against, political issues mainly, right? And, you know, against gay marriage and against abortion, for guns, surprisingly, really. Uh, but all these, all these uh, different political things, that's, that's what the world thinks of the church very often when we think about how the world considers us is that how jesus wants the world to see us how does jesus want the world to see us think the message from the beginning so god wants us to love one another that's what he wants us to be known for is, is our love for one another and if we're known for that, people are going to, outside the church, potentially, 
they're going to be upset with that because it's going to challenge how their way of life measures up. And I would submit to all of us, myself included, that there is an enemy out there, Satan himself, who wants to get up and subvert that message and get us derailed and off on other things so that we're not known for loving one another. We're known for other things because we are, in essence, not loving one another. So let's pay attention to the lies of Satan and let's try to uh, see if we can't point to them so that we don't follow them. If we go back to the beginning, that word, the beginning. We go back to John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus, speaking to the people of his day, said, You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So let's think about that for a second here. Maybe we can pick up where John the Apostle, John the writer of Scripture, got this idea that the beginning of the Bible was those first four uh, chapters of Genesis thought of as one, uh, one element in the beginning. Uh, so this, this business of Satan being a liar, that's in there, right? That's in those first few chapters. Snake gets in there, he tells a half-truth, but a half-truth is, is a lie because it was meant to deceive Adam and Eve, and it worked, Okay. So the lying part we get, that's in Genesis chapter 3. But what about the murdering part? Well, Satan doesn't murder anyone there in the opening chapter. But wait a minute, Cain does. And Cain's descendant, descendant Lamech does. I mean, there's murder that happens. The murder that happens in Genesis 4 is a direct result of the lie in Genesis 3. Satan seeks to tell lies to God's good creation so that it results in the message of love being diverted and, and, and a lifestyle of hate taking over. Satan's lies take us away from God's truth. So in 1 John 3, verse 8, that word beginning shows up again. John writes, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That powerful, somewhat cryptic in its context, but so crystal clear in the full context of scripture in Genesis 3.15 where, where the serpent is judged and uh, God, God says that, that uh, uh, he would, he would um, bruise the heel of the descendant of Adam but his head would be crushed pointing to Jesus who will be bruised by Satan when he came to the earth and died on the cross 
but through God's vindication, raising him from the dead, he destroyed the devil's work and he is crushing Satan's head. So the devil's the spoiler in Genesis 1 through 4 whose lies lead to murder, but Jesus came to spoil the spoiler and overcome the lie by the life that he lived and the message he taught, which we see in back in 1 John 3, verse 16, as we continue, being told repeatedly in the epistle of 1 John to love one another. 1 John 3, 16 shows us what love is so we're crystal clear and we don't get sidetracked by Satan's lie. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, little kindergartners, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So here's a definition of love. It's laying down our life for one another as Jesus did for us. Then he breaks it down even more than that because it's certainly true that true love will be willing to die for someone else. Certainly, that's, that's true. However, God doesn't call on us every moment of every day to, to potentially die for someone, to, to, to uh, step in front of the bullet for someone, to, to, to jump into oncoming traffic for someone. We surely love compels us to do that. That's what true love is. But thankfully, life is much, much more mundane than that. It isn't a series of life-threatening uh, situations from moment to moment, though it is for some in some places, thank the Lord for most of us that's not our daily experience so it has uh, to do with laying down our lives either being the willing to die or to share our stuff and play nice that that's the spectrum right if someone has material goods sees a brother and sister in need that does not pity them how can the love of God be in that person so Laying down our life means sharing our lives in service to others, just like Jesus did. And so I want to break it down to three elements here in verse 17. And this is how uh, we can uh, cooperate with the Spirit of God in our lives so that we don't fall for Satan's lies and devolve into chaos, but instead align ourselves with the word that we've heard from the beginning when it took uh, hold of our lives and began to change us and conform us into the image of Christ. Three things we can break down to make sure we understand the truth of this message. So one thing, first thing, uh, we need to determine what we have to share. If anyone has material possessions. So we have to determine what we have to share, what God has given us. 
We need before God to daily to take an inventory. God, what have you given me? Do we ever do we do that? Very often, I don't know about you, I know about me, I tend to go to God in prayer because I want something. I'm like a kid, like a kindergarten. Give me, give me, give me. Right? Do we go to God and, and do we take inventory, thank you God for, and take an honest inventory of what we have? includes our health that includes our family that certainly includes our material possessions that includes our facilities our ability to 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 think through problem solve and and move through life our ability to uh, communicate do we thank god do we take an inventory of what we have because those are the things that we have now to share we need to take an inventory of what we have to share and then two we have to ask God to help us see a need in others. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need. So we go through life and there's a lot of people around, right? And they're in the background, they're there. Sometimes they're in our face. Sometimes we see someone coming and we hope they don't get in our face. We try not to make eye contact because we know what that's going to be, right? We are selective in our seeing very often because we know that uh, people can be needy and people can be on a different agenda than ours because we have our agenda and they have their agenda. And guess what? They don't often match. If we want to... Avoid the lie of the enemy and believe the truth of God's word. We need to ask God to help us to see the needs in others. That, mean, that means really seeing them. Now that, if we uh, start our day and ask, you know, thank God for what we have and uh, take an honest inventory before God, that's one thing. It's another thing at the beginning of the day to say, God, help me see the need in others. That's a scary prayer. So only do it if you want to really be a Christian. That's all. Because that's what we're called to do. Take an inventory, number one. Ask God to show us a need in others. And then three, need number one and two to do number three here, but three is the important part. Three, share with those in need. Share what we have with those in need. It's compelling to hear the title of that book written back whenever it was written many years ago. Everything I ever need to learn, uh, know I learned in kindergarten. We know this profound truth and the wisdom we desire. Uh, the virtue we desire to see in children. So kids, we need to pick the kid that no one else picks on the playground, see the need. We need to share our things and play nice. And if we can learn to start hearing the very simple and profound truth of Scripture to love one another, the world will see us clearly and that's going to make them feel a certain kind of way 
but more importantly, before God, we're going to be cooperating with the recreation he is doing in our lives. Let's pray together. So our God, we're grateful for the wisdom you impart to us through your word. Convicted where we fall, short, but also so encouraged that you continue to love us, to nurture us, and carry us along. So thank you for the time we've shared around your word. Help us now as we share around your table. And one more time to reflect on what you've done to show your love to us through the broken body of Christ, through his shed blood. Help us to taste that which we can't fully understand and by your spirit learn to follow Jesus even better. In his name we pray. Amen.